millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, we are nearly there. 2022, just a stone's throw away. But first of all, here on the final Full Throttle bike racing podcast from Eurosport this year, it's time to reflect on a quite sensational 2021 World Superbike season. It really did have everything. I have to say, I was looking forward to this year more than any other because of all of the ingredients it had. And goodness me, it delivered and then some. Most importantly, we have a new world champion for the first time since 2015. And we also said goodbye to a number of memorable faces. One of them joining us on the show today. Chas Davis, who hung up the boots, leathers and helmets after Indonesia, is with us. He can finally relax now. No testing to look forward to in January. And we're also joined by our partner in crime from the commentary box for many of the rounds this season. James Tozen, two-time world champion. So, gentlemen, the season's been and gone, and we've looked forward to it for such a long time. It didn't start till very late, of course, in May, and here we are in mid-December, and it's uh, nearly time for the festivities. And what an amazing season we've had. JT, first of all, pleasure working with you for the first time. In 30 seconds, how can you sum up the 2021 World Superbike season? Working with you or the season? <laughs> well, I'll do work. Uh, now you've said it, I'll say working well, with me first. 30 seconds. That's complicated. <laughs> it's been great. Um, I, I feel really fortunate to kind of come on board with Eurosport and Discovery and uh, and hit such an amazing season that's uh, it's been one of the best, really, as far as the the the, the actual climax at the end that was built up between Jonathan and, and Top Rack there, even obviously Scott, till, till, till a round to go. Um, it was a, a three-horse race, um, uh, but but the riding and, and how and how hard they were riding and, and the battles and and there was a bit of rubbing going on, weren't there? And and shenanigans going off and on the track. It was really epic. It, 2021 was an epic year of, of, of World Superbikes, and I really really enjoyed uh, talking about it with you in the commentary box because you know I'd have been watching it at home, but so um, to, to to be in there and discussing things and. And also, it was the first time me back being in, in talking about World Superbikes as well for a good good decade, really. So um, it made me realise, because I've been in that paddock since I was 17, 16, 17 years old, it made me realise the people in there and the way it works and the team managers and the manufacturers, um, 
it was it was nice to tap into back into all that history and nostalgia and that and I, and I did I, I really uh, enjoyed doing the comms and pundit it as well in, in, in the thing but uh you know but it all it made it uh, even even special because how, how good the racing was yeah it was an amazing yeah wasn't it? i was really looking forward to this year more than ever before and i think it did deliver jazz i remember being quite emotional commentating on estoril 2020 which might have been your last race uh, and did prove to be your last win um, and of course, now we're not even three weeks as we record this. You're not even three weeks retired. How do you feel now? Uh, it feels good, to be honest with you. Obviously, it's easy to say that sat here and with, uh, you know, downtime in front of me. But I think when everybody gets on that flight to go to the, or, or not on the flight to, to drive down the road to Aragon next year for the first round of the, the 2022 season, I think that's when it will really hit home. I think it'll be feel a little bit more difficult at that point um but now you know i'm happy with the decision it's a decision that was taken with a lot of thought um but you know i've uh, i'm looking forward to this time to enjoy it with the family and yeah we'll see sort of what happens next year when uh, or how i feel next year when everybody starts going racing again and jt coincidentally it is 10 years this year since you were forced into retirement different scenario of course with your injury with your wrist but what advice have you got for Chaz now getting into the mindset of a, a normal civilian <laughs> it, but and it is a little bit like that it's, it's difficult to give advice on retirement because it's a sad sad um time it really really is um you can't underestimate just what joy and fun and escapism riding motorcycles at 210 miles an hour every weekend traveling the different cultures different food different climates, everything that racing motorcycles at world level, um, you're fortunate enough to experience in your life. And most motorcycle racers are from quite humble backgrounds where um, it's a, a margarita and chips and cheese on a weekend. And, and, you know, so to go from that to all of the, the world's offerings, it's, it's incredible. It really is incredible, but you don't realize just how incredible it is until a while after you've retired and you slip back into that civilian way of life that you kind of grew up in and you go back to. But because you've experienced such elation, um, you know, Chaz has stood on the top of the podium and listened to his national anthem. There is there is not a better feeling. Um, and whatever depression that comes from not racing motorcycles anymore because of the, whatever the, the chemicals in your mind that, that do happen, um, don't push anything away. Don't push anything away and, and, and try and appreciate it. And, and believe me, the appreciation of the smaller things and, uh, and, and other things that do become the most important thing to you rather than racing motorcycles do. So, yeah. So fingers crossed. You'll, you'll be fine. I'm sure. And Chad, did anything spur the decision on? Was there a certain moment where you felt yourself breaking earlier than you used to or rolling off the throttle or something from a riding point of view, or was this a long time coming? Uh, it's definitely been brewing for, I would say, a year since uh, since I lost the ride in the factory seat. You know, I go racing yeah. like you would have just, you want to line up on the grid knowing that you've got the best of the best and you've got all the effort of the manufacturer behind you and everything that you say goes directly into the development. Um, and my situation was no longer like that. Although I had a great team with Go11, I could no longer you know, have the first say you know, or the the biggest input when it came to development or steering things in my direction. Um, and there were a few things that I had to sacrifice where I 
knew that I wasn't going to get because I was in a a good, very good privateer team, but not in the factory team. So I had to settle a little bit. And that's just not my way of going racing. I'm always, you know, 10 tenths person. Either you're doing it or you're not. And for me, on balance, I looked at that side of things, how I felt inside, starting a, a new life with uh, with my family at home. Um, yeah, injuries and whatnot plays a part, but I, you can get over that. And to be honest, uh, even having my daughter, some people say that you lose a second lap. I won two races when I, after I had her in the back, back end of 2020. So it's all a mindset thing. Um, and for me, 2021, I did have a couple of injuries, but to be honest, it was more a, a little bit of a few different areas that spurred the decision on. And then I looked at it, you know, from the outside looking in, tried to put a different perspective on it and thought, you know what, you have to be grateful for the, the great times that I've had in this in the, in the World Superbike Championship. But the, like what JT alluded to, the life experiences that you get, the people that you meet, the cultures that you experience, there's, there's so much more to it than racing motorcycles. And I've had, you know, I have so much to look back on where I, I just have to be grateful for. And yeah, okay, I've had financial reward from the sport, which is something you don't you don't ever expect to happen. But for me, there's just uh, you know so many great elements that I've, I've managed to experience throughout my career where I can walk away, you know, just satisfied and, and grateful for that. Really. Okay, well, we'll definitely come on to more about you in a bit, Chaz, as the podcast goes on, because I've got a few memories from commentating on you that I'd like to talk about. But let's talk about the season in general and put you in a punditry role with JT here. James, we've had some amazing moments in the commentary box, haven't we? Some brutal racing going on out there. But just to start with you, Chaz, on this one first, what have you seen of some of the fights going on, you know, between Jonathan and Toprak and Scott up at the front? I guess you've seen some of it from on the track, some of it on the TV. What have you made of it? Because it's been very, very hard, hasn't it? <laughs> it's been epic, hasn't it? It's yeah. been the World Superbike of old, the the pre, well, even the JT era. I would say it's back to those days where it's a long time ago, very long time ago. No, <laughs> yeah, going for gaps that aren't there. You know, those three guys at the front have really made that championship what it is this year. Jonathan, Top Rack, and Scott. Have really been going at it and throwing everything they've got into it. The racing um, has been exceptional, and I think everybody's had a treat from your position in the commentary box, from my position on the track, following these guys and the fans' perspective at home. I think it's been, you know, a real vintage World Superbike season. What about Toprak style? I don't know if you can both help me understand it because it seems like nobody can understand how the hell that guy makes the apex at times. It seems like he's going off into the scenery, and James somehow he makes the apex takes positions at the same time. How on earth does the guy do it? Yeah, I, I think it goes back to his, and it, I think it goes back to his stunt riding. His dad obviously was a, a well-known, famous Turkish stunt rider. Yeah. And he learned particular skills on a motorcycle. Like I started with trials riding, which is obviously the, the balance and the, the, the control and the clutch control and all the rest of it. And, and, and then motocross. So I rode a road, like a road racing bike a certain way because of the skill sets I'd kind of learned. Like you see a lot of guys now on the, uh, on the dirt, um, uh, um, what is it called? Um, at, with the ranch at uh, Ross's ranch. Flat track. So um, you, you see a lot of, you see a lot of kind of flat track uh, way of riding um, now on the, uh, uh, at, uh, at the top leveling. Um, and top rack, 
is unique, I think, because of his, how the way he's learned a motorcycle from an early age on doing endos, doing wheelies, doing all the things that his dad actually was the best at, you know, in Turkey as a champion. And he has no problem at all about going from sixth gear to first gear in about two seconds flat uh, and doing it all on the front tyre. And the confidence that he has with the front of the Olin suspension on the Yamaha and the balance of the Yamaha, the, 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 uh, the weight transfer of the Yamaha, and also, more, most importantly, the confidence he's got with that Pirelli front tyre and the way the construction works and how it flattens out for him um, just as he is, is doing all of that, um, that the whole package allows him to do it. And, uh, and, and I think with, with the schooling that he's had, it works for him. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure on a MotoGP bike with carbon brakes and the stiffness of those chassis. Because usually, when the rear wheel comes off on off the floor on the braking on a MotoGP bike, it comes down and snaps at you because if it's slightly out of line. Um, but the, the the production bikes, the super bikes, are a little bit more flexible. So if if you do it, it comes down and it shakes its head a little bit, but you can still kind of like chuck it in there. Um, so I'll, I will be really, really intrigued to see if, if, if and when Top Rat does go to MotoGP, whether the MotoGP bike allows him, because that, that Michelin front tyre doesn't really like you to just load it that much um, on the brake. And, and then lifting the rear wheel off and then the rear wheel coming down with the electronic system and everything. On the, and, and it's, But it works for him in Superbikes and the Yamaha, and it looks bloody amazing. It's spectacular, isn't it? Yeah, and it looks like he will be in MotoGP in 2023. Let's see. I don't know whether it will be a factory Yamaha or a satellite Yamaha. It would be great if he could do it. Nobody's ever won, of course, the World Superbike title and the MotoGP title. Chaz, what about elsewhere around the field? Your old mate, Jonathan. I mean, you've had some superb fights in the past. He was up against it this year, though, wasn't he? The loss of the Rebs clearly uh, hindered them big time. But in many ways, it was amazing. He even took it to the final round at all, wasn't it? Yeah, well, Johnny's Johnny, isn't he? He's uh, a bit of a diehard when it comes to to uh, losing these races. He doesn't take it well, and he digs deep. And this year, you saw him on the on the ropes more than he has been ever before. And he kept fighting and punching. And in the end, yeah, he made some mistakes because of it, which probably ultimately cost him a real shot at getting that or wrapping the championship up in Mandalika. But he fought with you know everything you'd expect of a six-time world champion. He's uh, You'd think with some people, you know, they might be content with that and ready to sort of, you know, back off and give the position. But John Johnny gave every bit as he got. Top Rack you know, threw it into him a few times and he gave it right back. And to me, that was sort of the mark of the man is that he doesn't uh, he doesn't take losing well at all. And he, even if he's got all these titles and all these uh, statistics that, you know, he is the best superbike rider of all time. It doesn't matter. He still wants to win races just as much as he did six years ago. You feel Jonathan's lever was pushed up by the way you pushed him and vice versa because there were some classic Ray versus Davis, Davis versus Ray scraps over the years. I'm thinking of Sepang in 2015 and Aragon 17 and many others. You had your incident at Mizano when, when you had your crash and he went over you. That was a bad moment, wasn't it? But there's been a lot of memorable, lots of memorable scraps between you two over the last few years and it felt like you pushed each other up actually. Yeah, we had a fair share of, of ding-dongs on track and off track. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think probably anything, you know, racing against Johnny, what I saw over the years, so from 2015 to 2016 to then the 2017 season, is how much he worked 
uh, on improving his breaking performance. And I think that he, that was always the weakness. And that's where I could sort of pounce a little bit in, in especially the 2015 and 16 seasons. Then they did something at Kawasaki, maybe he altered his style to, to, to suit as well. Uh, but they did something which really upped his breaking performance from 2017 right through to today. Um, and I think that probably helped prepare him for the battles with Top Rack because Top Rack, you know, like what JT said, he does have that supreme confidence in the front tyre. He can get away with murder with how far he pushes it and, and hit, still hit the apex. He'll make massive mistakes in the braking and get it pulled up and hit the apex. And you're just there on track going, how, how are five people not in the gravel trap? And that's, for me, I think probably if there's anything that sort of really, you know, helped JR in those battles against Top Rack is, is that, is that I, I could always sort of have a little advantage in the braking area and he had strengths in other areas. But now uh, up against Top Rack, he's really using everything that he can all these years of racing against different rivals I think he's, uh, you know, throw, really throwing the kitchen sink at it issue. Yeah, James, as uncomfortable as it must have been for Jonathan and Kawasaki at the time, for us watching on as fans, commentators, spectators, it made for an amazing show, didn't it? It, it did. It did. Um, <clears throat> and it was it was nice because you got three different riders, three manufacturers, all 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 kind of trying to 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 find. The, the the absolute limit on all the areas that Chaz is just kind of talking about, you know. I mean, I, I mean, I've been at the side of the track watching Chaz enter the corners, and um, he, the, the the entry speed. I mean, I, I, that's one thing. If I was ever saying, oh, what, what about Chaz? Oh, you what you watch Chaz entering the corner every time. Every time I watched him, not just once or twice. Every time I watched him, I went, oh, he's not making that. <laughs> and and it, but but it but it, it wasn't off. It wasn't rear wheel off the floor. Um, and 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 obvious to anybody. It, it was only obvious to like an ex rider, um, and it was that flat tracking um, didn't necessarily break hard really at any point. Which um, so you didn't really slow the bike down um, a lot in a particular area. It was just so smooth but so quick, but always looked like he was entering too fast to hit the apex in a certain way where you'd be able to pick it up and en- exit properly. Not properly, but the best you could um and and each rider has that you know you got top rack um is pretty i tell you what I, I think top rack's the first ever rider that you cannot keep him behind going in to certain corners right mm. I, I i could have blocked harger and bayless and biagi i i because you get used to riding with riders and you get used to the strengths and weaknesses like Chaz just mentioned about, about jonathan's braking right but going down the straight in a straight line, like at Magnicor, for example, turn three for Magnicor, the hairpin, right? I, I don't know one rider on this planet, including Marquez, Rossi and all of them, that will keep top rack behind going in. And, 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 and that, that is psychologically a, a big thing because all the riders around him, I know Jonathan and Scott, They'll know that because they've had a couple of years now of getting absolutely pummeled into those kind of corners and they've tried everything they can to keep him behind, but they still can't. So every time you go down a straight, like at Magnicor or Aragon, down the uh, in, or not Aragon as so much, but into a hairpin, um, you, you're thinking, I, I, there's nothing really I can do about this. And that is huge. That's a huge advantage that Top Rack's got. 
Jazz, have you fought with him much on track? Obviously, this year you've been injured for quite a lot of the season and didn't really have the chance to fight with Toprak too much head-to-head. But I guess in his Pachetti Kawasaki days, you were on the factory Ducati. You must have gone up against him quite a few times. Yeah, we've had a fair share of battles over these few years that he's been in Superbike. We've had, I've had a fair few battles with him. And I think what you just said, JT, about that, you know he's going to have a go. If the door's not open, he'll force it open. <laughs> and that move that he put on Scott at Most... Uh, the second to last corner, he was miles back. He was he was at least two bike lengths back and he still went for it. And he still didn't even run that far wide. And Scott's not bad on the brakes at all. So, and, and that, like what you said, JT, is that psychologically for, for the riders going up against Top Rack, who maybe might be in front the last lap, they know that he's going to have a go somewhere. And unfortunately, they also know that he's that, he's got that much skill that he's going to put it in there and actually hit the apex and probably win the race. <laughs> so. uh, and it is, uh, it's a huge advantage as well, because if you're in front of him on the last lap, right, you're panting and you're just hoping you're on a circuit, right. That doesn't have a tight bloody corner with two or three <laughs> corners to go before the checkered flag. Like literally, aren't you? Like, yeah. there's, and there's not, and there's not many tracks on the calendar that doesn't have a bit of a tight corner before checkered flag. And like, yeah. you'd be riding around thinking, Oh, well, you either when's and, and to keep well to keep okay, when's he coming but to keep him behind you'll have to run so deep and cover so much that he'll get you on the exit so it's yeah it's it, I tell you what and there's you know there's certain riders like that that can do things in certain places that ride other riders can't like Marquez you know uh, saving the fronts and stuff and um you know, there's the, the, there was a the, like, you know, I remember Gary McCoy wheel spinning that 500, uh, right? Like nobody could do that other than him on those Dunlops on that yam. Like the, there's certain things that riders all of a sudden rock up and you think, hang on a minute. I remember, I remember Stefan Shambon on a, on the paddock bike, like wheeling in a circle in the paddock, like um, like a really tight. So I, I was thinking, you know, there's just there's a certain skill set, and Top Rack has learned a certain skill set on the brakes that is pretty indefensible and it and that is very impressive at world level to to find something extra on your competitors at world superbike level MotoGP gp level than the other guys that have been doing it 15 years 20 years <laughs> it's good going yeah and Chaz, we did an interview didn't we the other day for mcn and in that you were telling me that a lot of your heavy braking style came from growing up on your mum and dad's karting circuit and the fact there were from the seven or eight corners you had six of them perhaps were tight hairpins so it's funny how much of this does come from your childhood, really? Yeah, definitely. And if you look at the drills that Keenan has his riders doing, so Top Rack and Chan Onchu from Super yes. Sport, Dennis Onchu, yeah. some of the drills that they're doing, you know, they're, they're bar to bar on their little pit bikes. <laughs> they you know what they're riding. Yeah. They're, they are absolutely, they're throwing it into these gaps, like what you're seeing Top Rack do in the in the World Superbike races. They're just, they're training like that. That's a bit of fun to them. They're doing it day in, day out. So yeah, they love it. Yeah, do it on true. the weekend, you're just sort of continuing what they're doing in the week anyway. And for me, yeah, like you like you said, I was, I grew up on a kart track. A lot of the corners are very tight. I think that probably when I was younger, I, I did have a little bit more of a rolling style, but I, I would, would run in corner speed and whatnot, especially riding with 125s and, and even 250. But then, as I've got onto the four stroke, you sort of develop the style to sort of stop the bike in the shortest possible time. You stay as sort of least time you can at lead angle and pick the thing up and fire it out. And that's what I, I can see Top Rack doing a lot of at the at the track with Keenan. Um, 
and they use a good front tire, but he said their rear tire can do about 800 laps. So that also brings a different skill set with, you know, being able to control a tire that doesn't have much grip on entry, a rear tire that's sort of trying to come around on you and entry and also lighting up on you on the exit. And I think, uh, you know, all of this stuff, all of these years of drills that he's been doing with Keenan, you, you do see sort of coming out more and more. And I think at the same time, the Yamaha uh, team have really given him a package that he can take that confidence from. He has, he can absolutely have 100% confidence in the front end, which Yamaha has always been strong for anyway, but he's really, you know, making it work uh, you know, with his style, getting the best out of himself, but also getting the best out of the motorcycle as well. And, and when you've got that amount of confidence in your front, it doesn't matter so much what happens to that rear tyre because you can still put it in the place you need to to having the minimum time on the edge because you can get your you can get your midpoint speed, your mid-corner speed at a certain uh, level where you can still pick it up and get the drive out as well as you can even on a bad rear tyre. That, that's, that's a big advantage. As this is one of, if not the last podcast of the year, I wanted to get on to the very important topic of Tozlan's top tips. And this is a list I've been compiling on my phone. Don't make that face, James. Um, across the season. And the first one is Reading and the Cycle Ride. And then we move on to part two entitled Daryl. Now, Chaz, you were at home, weren't you? <laughs> you were at home watching Portimao, weren't you, Chaz? And you heard James's comments. And I have to say... I think he actually gave Scott Redding further motivation to do well that weekend. But what was your reaction <laughs> as a viewer at home? I was cringing, sat there, knowing that Uncle Daryl was going to be listening to it. Like, JT, you're getting it in the neck, mate. <laughs> Daryl is a key listener to this podcast, by the way. So hello, Daryl. No, James, I have to say, I know I'm making fun of you, but <laughs> but your honesty this year has been a real highlight of the commentary, I think. And it must be a bit uncomfortable sometimes to be so honest, knowing you are going to get a bit of a reaction from people. The toughest thing about the job with commentary or TV is you're there to have an, your opinion and opinion on, on people on doing what they do. And what people do on the track is, is putting their life on, on, on the line and trying their best. Yeah. So when it's, when it's, when it's questioned or criticized, it's, it's a difficult pill to swallow because there ain't no margin, and 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 we and, and we're very competitive people, and we don't we don't like to be told that we can't do something or achieve something or we're doing something wrong. And for me to have my opinion on it, it, it is that's the most difficult point job for, uh, part of the job for me to 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 have to do that. Um, but it's I, I'm hoping that people that are listening they realise it's actually nothing personally directed at the people I'm talking about. It's only from my own experiences of 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 what I'm seeing with what they're doing with with what I know. And there's a difference there. I'm not going to go through the whole list because it wouldn't be fair. But one of the other ones is uh, BMW and the piano. That was uh, very early yeah. on in our commentary partnership together. Have you wheeled that piano down to the Shawmuir Hospitality yet to celebrate that Portimao win? Stop it, Greg. You are luring me back into. Uh, I've only I've only just started to get some Christmas cards back, mate. You know, I've, I've, <laughs> I've already. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I, again, um, again, I, I, I've been in, I've been in World Superbikes a long, long time. I've ridden for most of the teams. I've ridden for most of the team managers, and all the manufacturers, etc. Um, and I'm, I, I feel I feel I'm in a position to have a confident opinion about 
about most stuff that happens in world superbikes as a pundit. Um, yeah. And 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 believe me, if I'm proven wrong by something because of an exceptional performance, i.e., Scott's performance at Portimao, you know, after his cycle ride from from Jerez, right? I, I there is there's no there's no one more pleasantly surprised, uh, and uh, and I and I will be complimentary, like massively complimentary, when people do things beyond what I think is capable or what should happen in World Superbike from my own experiences, right? <laughs> I, I can yeah. only go what all my experiences are, and if people kind of go above and beyond, I'll be the first to congratulate them. And, and I did, I did import them out, didn't I? And that, I, that's why we're joking about it now. And, and and I will, I will keep on doing what I'm doing. I have an opinion on it. I I, I don't think anybody could disagree with what I say, really. Even yeah, though I agree with it, you. you might, yeah. you might, you might, you might, it's not wrong, but it it, it might it might be proven wrong in in the future. Uh, but I think people kind of uh, don't understand that, you know. Which leads us on nice, actually, to our sort of personal highlights of the year. I mean, JT, starting with you, because you were in the commentary box for most of it, was there one moment that you can remember getting particularly excited about or surprised about? I think, you know, the Jonathan Ray crashes took me by surprise. They weren't particularly nice to see, but they were a shock. Some of the top rack moves, the one that Chaz mentioned on Scott at Most. Anything in particular for you, James? Yeah, big time. Magnicor, when uh, when Jonathan kind of uh, called out the green paint thing and the off, off trip, that was... I, I realized why Jonathan Ray was a six-time world champion at that point. I was like, oh wow. I I, I didn't realize that I didn't just didn't realize how ruthless Jonathan Ray was underneath that helmet because I don't know him that I know him very well to say hello to and obviously and, and you know to have that kind of relationship in a paddock that you do have with with Rams. But um but he really showed just how determined and bloody minded uh, a cutthroat and all all of the experience that you can think of to 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 not letting that number one go, and we really did see that to its to its best. And it was it was it was just so it's just so exciting that he was going to go to those lengths to to not give it to top rack at all. Um, and it, and it, and we we all want great rivalries in sport, don't we? You know. From the Senna and Rostier and 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 the Marquez and Rossi and uh, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Sport needs that, um, and and that's what uh, Jonathan and Top Rack was this year, and it's, it was awesome. Uh, Chas, what was your take on the green paint incident at Magnico? Yeah, I mean, I really think that you saw the side of Jonathan that not too many people get to see. I've I've seen it before. I can see, you know, the smile to the camera. I'm happy with second place, and the turn around and look at Pere and the desperation in his face that he just got beat by me or by somebody else. I've, I've seen that many a time, you know, he, he really is a, a cold blooded killer and you don't get six world championships from being Mr. Nice. And uh, I think that really sort of highlighted to everybody what it means to Jonathan to, to win and what lengths that he will go to. Um, and yeah, for me, it was, uh, did he have a reason to call Cool top rack out on that probably did you know he went on the green the rules are the rules but there's also another way of doing it um you know without all the back slaps and all the the congratulations and the smiles and then the the miss the jekyll and hyde character that comes out where it's a complete 180 uh turn when he looks at his crew chief you know there was there was probably should he have done it a bit different yeah probably should have been a bit more, tra- been a bit more transparent uh about it but that's uh 
that's that's the way it went down and all for our benefit and obviously you've been on the receiving end of some of that as well haven't you over the last few years you've beaten him a few times he's beaten you a few times what is that like to fight with the might and the ruthlessness of jonathan ray and the kawasaki team who will be very ruthless whenever they need to be what's that like it's tough because you know they're never going to give in you can pummel them and we did in my best run in world superbike i had you know at a Eight races, I won seven of them towards the end of 2016. We were winning races by not just a couple of tenths, but seconds. And it was, you know, I was feeling excellent with a bike. And Johnny wrapped up the championship in Qatar. And I'll never forget that he looked depressed and he couldn't quite get over. Neither could Pere, neither could the rest of the Kawasaki team. They couldn't quite get over that they were getting pummeled. But they, you know, they got the big prize, but it wasn't really enough. And that's what you're up against with with Jonathan and with Kawasaki is that it's never enough. And I don't think it will ever be enough. Um, so you're always, whoever gets on that grid next year, the years after that, you're always going to be up against that sort of, uh, you know, powerhouse. I mean, you're both world champions. Chaz, you were a world super sport champion. James, twice a world super bike champion. Have you two never had this mindset, you know, this ruthlessness, this selfishness, if you like, or perhaps is it something you did have that you realize afterwards and you think, crikey, I actually... I was very single-minded and actually quite selfish there. Or is it just the select few who really do go on to win multiple titles like, you know, the Schumachers, the Rays, the Rossies, the Marcuses of this world? Who, who first? <laughs> <laughs> I deliberately left that one open to see who answered first. I'm still thinking just how selfish I am. I'm, I'm, I'm just... <laughs> Nobody's but jumping Jack... on that one. <laughs> yeah, but James, I know James. We've spent time together over the year, you know, um, yeah, commentating you know together. Just how selfish I am. <laughs> no, I was gonna actually gonna. <laughs> I was actually gonna say the opposite. You know, you're the first to get up and get a drink, or you go and make the teas, or you pop out to a vending machine and get me a chocolate bar when we're commentating. Far from selfish. Um, I know, so have you changed? Two times or... champ, not six times champ. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for all the Kit Kats, by the way. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, did you used to be selfish then? Or are certain people just different? You must have been at some point in, oh, in time. Of course, of course, of course. I, I, if I could, I, I would have won the Superbike Championship every single year of my career, ever <laughs> since I jumped on a, on a motorcycle from being nine years old. Uh, like because there's nothing better and that, that's what if you're competitive and you have a dream and as a as a, as a kid you see in the uk um i i was a, a an early teenager when foggy was doing his first world championship wins in night four and five yeah. i was 13 and 14 at that point so and because there wasn't really a, a british success at 500s at that particular point Got McWilliams doing a fantastic job a little bit later than that, but um, uh, it was all superbike really. So mm, I got yeah. me foggy. Po I got me foggy poster on the wall, and Kevin Swans really in five hundred, uh, and and um, and and all of a sudden you find yourself um, um, kind of having a chance to ride in in similar championships as a dream as a kid, right? It, but you know you could have like a basketball thing with, with Michael Jordan or whatever, and but be very rare that you could find yourself on a basketball court in America in LA, in it, you know, but, um, so it's, yeah. uh, um, so, so when I actually got, got into racing and I realized I was pretty good at it, uh, and then I, I won my first championship in junior championship. Um, uh, it's, it's not just about being a world superbike champion. I was a British junior champion. I was, um, I was a CB 500 cup champion. Uh, I, you know, I, I won go-kart in a couple of years ago with the lads. Yeah, and I've still got my trophy on the, in my little study. It, it's 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 just that, 
unfortunately for Jonathan Ray, he's been on an amazing bike for six years in an amazing team that's allowed him to win six World Superbike Championships. But it's just the way we tick. It doesn't matter what we're winning, we're winning. Uh, and I, I, I wish I'd have won more Superbike Championships, of course, but even if, I, even if I'd have won 10 World Superbike Championships, I'd have still wanted 11. And mm. it's just how we are, isn't it? And it's annoying. I tell you why it's tiring for everybody else around you. Jesus, it's a, it's a tiring old treadmill to be on and it's difficult to get off. But um, it's, it's uh, yeah. Like it, that's, I think that's why I describe it as it is tiring because you never get mm. satisfaction when you're like, when you're like us. <laughs> I'll pay a little. Do you think Hattie would say that as well, Chaz? Your wife Hattie. Um, you know, you, well, no, you've been with... <laughs> I'll let Chaz answer that. But you know, you... I'll leave that one alone. I, <laughs> I mean, uh, have you been difficult to be around in the past? Because I remember you could have your grumpy moments in interviews and things, but that depends very much on the race you've had, and every ride is like that. But as yeah. a person, you know. Yeah, I'm sure she's she'll have her stories, but you know, I think everybody to a certain extent in all sport, all top sports, sports people will be selfish and you have to be, you've got to, you've got to be selfish because at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot riding on the success. And if you feel like you're within sniffing distance of success, you've got to do whatever it takes to, to make those necessary steps to, to find success. And for me, I think one thing that really helped me quite early in my world supersport career was, I put in so much effort one summer and did everything perfect. I felt like I had I trained harder than ever. I'd eaten perfect. I got got me eight hours every night. I just ticked all the boxes. And I went to the next race and I thought, you know what? I'm like, I'm going to blitz this. And I don't know what I'm going to win by, but I'm going to win it. And I'm going to yeah. dominate. And I'd had a few good races. And, and anyway, I got there. And I had my worst result of the season. And... It's that to me, it sort of made me open my eyes and go, you know what? It's as much about, it's a balance. You've got to have fun. Yes, you've got to be determined. Yes, you've got to be selfish, but you don't got to be too selfish. You're only a human being at the end of the day. You're just a motorbike rider. So there's a lot of things that go into being a motorbike rider, but a balanced motorbike, you know, the, the best motor. There's the best way of going about it. It's not being too extreme one way or too extreme another way. And for me personally, that's what worked. It's different for everybody. No two people are the same. I'm sure, you know, Jonathan is, I'm sure that he's found some balance over the years as well, but it's like, he's still got that competitive drive in him where I think that he is willing to go to those lengths. Whereas I felt like I've lost that. I don't know about you in your career, JT, um, Yours got cut short, obviously, for, for very different reasons to myself. But I used to be so competitive. And to a certain extent, I still am competitive. But I can get over it these days. I can sort of go, well, if I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. That's that's what it is. But I feel like some people don't have that off switch. And that's what I see with Jonathan. It's, uh, it's you know, he keeps keeps fighting the whole time. Yeah, it is. It, it is. I'll tell you what you were lucky, though, Chaz. Can you imagine if you'd have gone to that race and won by 10 seconds? <laughs> you'd, have, you'd have been on that. You'd have been on that treadmill forever, then, wouldn't you? Eight, eight hours sleep, eating all the right things, and all the rest of it. Yeah. So it might have, it might have done your favour, actually. Do me a favour, yeah. Lived a little. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You were able to just turn it down a little bit, and that's the, that's the thing about being a professional sportsman. You kind of, you you do you do what you can, and you try and be a better person every single day. 
and and you arrive at your job and you try and do the best you can and whatever you've done if it does work that particular weekend you try and remember what you've done the week before and 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 so it goes on and it is uh, it's um being a professional sportsman in any field I, I take my hat off to everybody because um it's it's relentless it really is relentless it has high rewards but very very um um difficult challenges that that goes with it uh and and you know the selfishness and all the rest of it around it it's it's not very easy to 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 be to to be to co in you know um um to co inhabit uh, the, the space with that person because you you're very not you're not emotionally present with anything else other than trying to to be the best in the world on a motorcycle but um um but it's it's the challenge that we that, that we set for for ourselves and and sometimes personality traits like ours i think talking university about motorcycle races uh we have to have something and and there is no better thing than to race motorcycles at 200 miles an hour to to uh, to to function with with that level of um that motivation in life talking of racing motorcycles at 200 miles an hour it all continues of course in aragon next april i think it's great as well that we've got two great rivals you know you think of Schumacher retired in 2006. Hamilton came in in 2007. Stoner stopped in 2012. Marcus started in 13. Toprak and Ray are overlapping and we're getting to see them fighting together, which I think is a massive privilege for all of us. JT, start with you on this one. What should we expect from 2022? We've got Reading on a BMW. Surely Locatelli is going to be in there fighting for the podium in pretty much every race this time. Bassani is getting stronger all the time. Where do we go from here? I think uh, that Chess is something really interesting about the final race. Like they won the championship, but then they still got beat on the track at that particular point in time. And even though it's 2022 and it's a brand new season and people on different bikes, it, it, there's no difference for, for team and for rider. It, it's just the, 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 the treadmill you're on just goes on uh, and the game goes on. And, and I, and I think um, that the, con- the consistency of the Kawasaki and Jonathan and the Yamaha of top rack. Um, I, I can't see it not being another epic battle because you've got two amazing manufacturers that the Kawasaki need to improve in a few areas uh, compared to the Yamaha this year. But we've seen how bikes develop from year to year and how quick they can. So I'm sure Kawasaki will sort out that, uh, that uh, you know, the braking issues that they had. But that might be a little something to do with, you know, because Chaz knows Jonathan really well, it might be something that Jonathan also needs to improve on, you know, because that was his weak point. So he might need to take another step. But um, I just hope that the BMW, I know I heard Sean talking about it, new bike, new engine, new chassis, new electronics. It all sounds very, very new. And when everything's new, you've got to be pretty fortunate that it all bolts together and it does good. Really fortunate. Um, And if you do need a new chassis, a new engine, new electronics, well, there's there's obviously quite sizable issues with with the package. Um, But I do hope it bolts together and we have Jonathan uh, and Vandermark, because he's, he's, he's a good rider as well, um, uh, where we know Scott Redding can finish, because Scott Redding at the front and the sharp end of World Superbikes makes it more interesting. So I hope that the BMW allows him to do that, because if we can have um, the Bautista um, up there back on, on, on the factory Ducati uh, with Rinaldi, hopefully getting some consistency back, 
to or, yeah. or just some consistency to his game. You've got the two Yamaha boys, like I said, with Top Rack Andrea. Um, you've got the unknowns of the the young Honda riders, the Spanish riders with Lacona and Viaje. Um, but before you know it, you, if you, you're outside the top ten, and that the depth of field and the level of manufacturers now in superbikes and MotoGP, we are in a golden era when it comes to standard of riders, standard of manufacturers, and the closeness of the racing. It should be another epic. Yeah, Toprak saying he wants to win this title for himself. He said, I've won one for my dad. Now I want to win one for myself. They all seem to be worried about Batista back on the Ducati. Garrett Gerloff seems more refreshed already. He's back with his family in Texas. Hopefully he'll come back nice and refreshed for 22. What do you reckon, Chaz? Are we going to see Toprak versus Ray again? Or is the Beamer going to be in there? Can Honda finally... It feels like Honda aren't that far away, really, but they're just... They're lacking in testing, aren't they? And they're... I don't think they're too far away in raw performance, but it's, it just ain't happening yet, is it? No, they've definitely had, I think, probably a difficult or more difficult two years than what they anticipated. But you see yeah. the podiums that Bautista managed to get towards the end of, of this year is that they are making steps forward. There's there's real quality about the bike when you follow it, but there's also some some huge weak points. Um, but I know, you know they're working very hard. The full might of Honda is behind it, which obviously is extremely powerful in itself. Um, so I think they they stand to to make a step forward, uh, and they've got they're going to have two very young and keen riders. So maybe they don't have the most experience; they'll lack a little bit. And, you know, they're not going to go out and win the championship. But I think with the the two riders that they've got, you saw Lecarona's performances towards the end of, of this season in uh, MotoGP. He was consistently the strongest KTM rider. So I think. Yeah. If, can uh, adapt to the Pirelli tyres over this this winter and get it. And Honda can help him make make some steps and, and get comfortable with the bike. And Honda make those those steps in development themselves. Then, you know, you put a real good bet there for you know getting some sniffs of the podium. But in terms of the championship itself, I think I, I don't think Top Rack's going to be any weaker. I think that he's going to go from strength to strength. Now he's got this championship wrapped up. I think that he's uh, he's going to be quite a force next year. But for the interest of everyone, like JT said, I really hope that BMW can provide Scott with with the bike that you know we need. What well, we as spectators are going to need to uh, to enjoy the show because you need Scott Redden at the front. And I think that they've had a tough couple of years, but they you know, hopefully they can turn that corner and really put a put a bike underneath both him and Vandermark that can push push on and uh, fight for race wins. And then I think Bautista on the Ducati is. Uh, I think he's going to be, you know, really relishing that opportunity now after a couple of difficult seasons, getting back on a bike that he knows is, I can say this now, but I've rarely seen a more perfect match between man and machine of people that I've raced against when he was on this dominant run at the beginning of 2019. It was, it was actually unbelievable what he was doing. I think you could have put anybody on the track with him at the same time. um, And they'd have, they'd have struggled to lay a glove on him. He, his confidence was, supreme and the way he was riding the bike was fantastic and i think if he can rediscover some of that magic then he'll be he'll be a real force to be reckoned with it's you know the question mark is can he get back to that level of confidence is after two years now is is his confidence been knocked that little bit is he going to get back to you know that those last couple of percent which will make the difference between you know him finishing on the podium or just dominating by 10 seconds sort of thing um, so it's there's a lot of intrigue there, I think, because for me, Bautista potentially can uh, can win the championship next year. But 
obviously a lot of a lot of things going to fall into place. And then, like you said, hopefully Rinaldi. Um, he was devastatingly quick this year on occasion at, at Mizano, extremely yeah. quick, and then uh, Barcelona as well. So if he can just iron out some of those some of the weaker races, I think that he could certainly be in the mix. Um, and then yeah, Locatelli, Garrett showed incredible sort of late race pace on numerous occasions. I'd be flicking through the timesheets, and the quickest guy on track for the last 10, 10 laps is Gerloff. Yeah. But, he was nowhere in the beginning, so I really hope that he can. Obviously, had his confidence knocked after the incident in Asset, but hopefully, he can find his mojo again, get his elbows back out on them early laps, and really put it in a position where he's there at the end of the race because he's he's definitely got the pace. I don't think you've seen anything like the best of Garrett Gerloff yet, um, and hopefully, next year we'll, we'll get to see a bit more of that. So, yeah, it's all all up in the air, but uh, exciting. And it is beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. What's uh, Davis and Tozlan got in store over the next few weeks? Is it a lot of alcohol and mulled wine and, uh, I don't know, turkey and goodness knows what else? James, we'll start with you on this one. Anything? A spectacular oh. Christmas tree, by the way. James has got his video on here. That's a beautiful <laughs> Christmas tree, which you put up for this uh, for this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I was a bit of a Scrooge last year. I had nothing. You know, obviously with really? the pandemic and all the rest of it, and yeah. you couldn't even invite anybody around anyway, could you? So it was absolutely pointless to do any effort. So yeah, I've got <laughs> a bit more effort. I've got a bit more effort this year. Um, uh, I, I I buy Christmas dinner for my family, and and it's 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 a nice thing to do. But I tell you what, it's an easy thing to do. You know, when it comes to the old present thing, as you can you can just chuck, chuck everybody a Christmas dinner, and you don't have to cog around Meadow Hall and Chef. Is that those <laughs> re- those ready-made Marks and Spencers Christmas dinners, something like that, that sort of thing? Um, no, no, it's I, I do. I, it's it is a, it's a nice little restaurant just just close to us. So um, it's. Uh, and it's not, you know, Christmas dinners aren't cheap, Greg. You know, don't talk this down, <laughs> thank you very much. You know, it's a, uh, it's it it is it's it's a it's a gesture. It is it is a gesture. Even though, uh, mm, um, yeah. And luckily, my nephews are they're all grown up now, so they're not wanting like uh, actually mentors and all the way different. So I don't have to wrap too much up. It's wrapping that really annoys me. Uh, I'm, I'm not good at it, and I don't like doing anything I'm not good at. Yeah, exactly. So uh, uh, the Christmas dinner really suits me. Everybody sat there. I'm thinking, oh, I've done my thing for my family kind of thing and blah, blah, blah. Um, and they, they don't have to unwrap any really disappointing presents from me. So, uh, but yes, yeah, so I, I have I have gone to town and I do love Christmas. And I'm looking forward to it. And I'm, I'm hoping that, in fact, I'm hoping that the Christmas day, <laughs> I hope I've not cursed it because last year the Christmas dinner at this place was cancelled with the with going. <laughs> oh, no. Right? And disaster. then can you imagine the disaster it was last year? So I had nothing, absolutely nothing. So um, uh, literally went to the cash machine and just got a load of money envelopes. <laughs> <laughs> so, matter that everybody went hungry. That didn't matter. Uh, yeah, so obviously, so it, yeah. <laughs> Chas, you've not got to get into this mindset this year of, ah, testing's coming up because it's usually quite soon into January, or at least it used to be when, when the season started in Australia at the end of Feb. But you're not going to think about that at all this time. No, thank God. I hated testing, so <laughs> I don't have to uh, worry about that too much. We just keep topping up the mulled wine and uh, keep the feet up. But yeah, yeah. it's, it's going to be different. It's going to be certainly a different uh, Christmas, different January, because you're always, when you're racing, you're always at the Christmas table going, you know, oh, I've got to get training here, you know, tomorrow or in a few days, what's the next thing? There's always that next thing. You're always, you know, oh, I'm driving to Spain next week to do whatever test yeah. going and riding this flat track or, or that motocross and 
it'll be different this year. Obviously, I don't have that to think about, which is going to be nice. But like I said earlier, I'm sure it'll be by the time the racing comes around, I'll be uh, chomping at the bit a little bit. And obviously people will be asking, I know you've got nothing confirmed at the moment, but you'll be about in the paddock every now and again. We'll see you, won't we, on, on the TV cameras? I'm sure you'll be around. Yeah, I do hope so. Obviously, this has been, you know, all of my life has been, you know, in racing. It's it's all and everything that I know. So I think it's not uh, not that I want to disappear, but it's not that easy to disappear. You know, I love this sport and I love it as a rider, but I also love it as a fan. And actually listening to you guys on the sofa um, when I was all crocked after uh, the Barcelona race, watching Portimao from home. I'd already made the decision. I'd already announced that uh, that I was going to retire. And um, to me, it really sort of hit home how much I could sit on the sofa and enjoy racing and, and just, you know, how much I love this sport that we, we've been involved in. And that it was quite refreshing because I really, that should have been a really difficult period for mm-hmm. me where I wasn't feeling very good. I had just announced my, my retirement, um, but actually I really enjoyed the race and it helped that Portimao was a couple of, barn burner races um and it was quite yeah. exciting but you know that was a big step in it in itself just having that sort of frame of mind where i can enjoy it like uh you know, like everybody else on, on the sofa and and let me just give you one more thing jazz if i can if you, you'll have wished maybe you'd have won this or maybe won that and all the rest of it like like we all do which valentino rossi will do you all have wanted that 10th you know um but you lead the sport respected Chaz and believe me that's the biggest award you can have in anything that you do in life and you are very much respected in motorcycle racing and forever motorcycle fraternity is your family pal and um, it, it's it's a nice family to be amongst yeah definitely is yeah cheers JT yeah Chaz thanks for me as well because you've been there at the front of the races ever since I've been commentated on them in 2015 and yeah, you've given us a lot of drama and excitement over the years and, and spiced up some rather dominated seasons at times as well. So thank you very much because it's been a pleasure. Cheers. Thanks, Jazz. And James, thanks for everything this year. We'll all be in touch, I'm sure. But in the meantime, everybody, have a good Christmas or whatever you're doing for the festive season. And we'll be in touch, I'm sure, in 2022. Well, there we are. It's been a very, very strange year once again, hasn't it? With the global pandemic still uh, unsettling and upsetting things. But we've got there. We've got to the end of the 2021 season. We've got to the end of our 2021 run for the Full Throttle podcast. And now we can all just hopefully settle down for the holiday season and get ready to go again in 22. Greg Haynes with you. I'd just like to say thank you very much indeed to everybody at Eurosport for everything across the season. Didn't really have time to do my thank you message in the commentary this year as we had to quickly throw back to Matt Roberts and the guys with the Indonesia races because we were so delayed after all the rain we had. Didn't have time to thank anybody. So here it is now. Thank you to Pete Burton and Ola Fisayo, our little team here at Full Throttle. Everybody back in Chiswick who puts the podcast together. It's been an absolute pleasure, guys. And looking forward to more in the near future. Thank you also, of course, to the Eurosport production team, Will Brooks, Tim Falden, our producers, and everybody behind the scenes in vision, in sound, Amanda, our PA. Special thanks to me in particular. I have to go to all of my Caillou commentators over in BSB and also especially in World Superbikes, Mr. James Tozen himself. It's been a pleasure working with you this year, James. And of course, to Wit, Mr. James Whittam, Always a great laugh, both on air and off air. Finally, though, 
the biggest thanks to all of you at home. I know you all listen from various locations around the world. We get some great messages through the Eurosport social media channels and through my website as well at times. I know you listen from some very exotic places and uh, in all sorts of different places, trains, buses, home, and goodness knows where else, probably a few sneaky listens at the office as well. But honestly, thank you very much, all of you. It's been an absolute pleasure bringing the podcast to you. We are a small team. We try our best. Uh, We're a little bit limited sometimes with what we can do, but we will do the most we can. And we're pushing to do even more in 2022. Hopefully a few video podcasts, perhaps some pit lane walkabouts again, and plenty of exclusive interviews and maybe a few laughs along the way as well. But for now, thank you very much, everybody. We'll speak, no doubt, at some point in 2022. But for now, relax. Enjoy watching back the races on the Eurosport app and the Eurosport player. There's been a lot of great action this year. And from me, Greg Haynes, thank you once again. Happy holidays. Speak to you all soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.